and welcome to this latest episode of the Talking Heads podcast with me, Lucy Chamberlain. And me, Saul Walker. Now that autumn is making itself known to us, it seems a natural time to reflect on times past and look forward to new ventures ahead. So, with that in mind, we'd like to give a nod to these recent few months by simultaneously embracing what lies in front of us, both practically and at our respective gardens, and by assessing how this exciting industry that we've decided to devote our professional lives to is evolving and thriving. So many of us are showing this sector's true grit by quietly propagating new stock, dreaming up fresh initiatives, looking to new ways of working and generally supporting the trade. And our aim via this podcast is to muse on developments and showcase these horticultural heroes. We'll bring you two short 20-minute episodes each week, plus a longer bonus monthly interview. What more of a reason do you need to join us on this journey? Let's once again step into the busy and exciting world of the modern head gardener. Hello, Saul, and welcome to this episode 51 of 51? Talking Podcast. Now, I'd just like to get in there very quickly and say to people, this is only going to be about 20 minutes long. So <laughs> yes. if you were one of those Thank superstar God. people that got through the one hour, 20 minute epic episode that was episode 50, well done, first yeah, of all. Absolutely. We will, yeah, that's, 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 uh, hats off to you. That's, that took some stamina and lots of cups of tea um, and various custard creams. And uh, thank you very much for listening to that. So now we're going back to the usual format, which is 20 minutes. Um, everyone heaves a sigh of relief. So there we go. So um, one thing I would love to flag up with you tonight, I know you and I saw are very, very passionate about our local gardens to you in Devon and me in Essex. And something that was uh, announced in late August was that... He, uh, the, a local garden to me, and one I'm very fond of, which is Beth Chateau, uh, Elmstead Market. It's very close to where my parents live, so I, and very close to where I used to work, and I used to get there at lunch times and and just soak it all up. And my for my birthday, I've been given lots of Beth Chateau vouchers, so I'm I'm a real fan of the Beth Chateau Gardens. It has been added to Historic England's National Heritage List for England, and this actually helps to protect the garden and preserve it for the future. And that, to me, I think is a lovely notion and gesture, but also very important because I think these gardens are so um, so important to the horticultural history that we that we know this is like modern history to us and to be to be part of 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 that and see it happen is is very reassuring yeah definitely and and i think because uh we've both read the the report it's quite nice because it's uh beth chats along with 20 other landscapes across the uk have been given this uh grade two listing and it's not often that they put um modern gardens uh 20th century Mm. gardens generally most of the listings we have on our gardens are 19th century and before so you know very old gardens but you've got to think you know we're now 20 years into the 21st century the 20th century is beginning to become a bit more distant history and a lot of the gardens that were started in say the 40s 50s and 60s now have a good 50 Mm. 60 70 years under their belts that's that's quite a lot of time to mature and develop we definitely know uh, beth chateau's sadly beth isn't with us anymore but we definitely know that the garden you know has matured into a quite a fine and stately uh, very beautiful garden it's celebrating its 60th year this year well there you go yeah so it's nice that um historic england working along with the gardens trust has put these gardens 
into listings. Now, I have an acute awareness of listings. Uh, I'm not sure about East Donland, but Stonelands actually is a listed garden. We're a grade two uh, listed garden because we used to be part of the Luscombe estate, which was designed by Humphrey Repton. Uh, generally, gardens get listed when they either have uh, a significant design style or they're associated with one of our, you know, key historical garden celebrities or they or they have a, a distinct look to them. Um, and gardens listings are really interesting because this is the first garden I've worked in, which has a listing, if we take out the National Trust and Kew Gardens, which are all have... Uh, listings or queues actually a UNESCO heritage site which is really interesting but um, the listings are interesting for gardens because there are a lot of them about you can get three types of listing there's grade one grade two and grade two starred Um, I'm not 100% sure what it means in each but I think one's more important than the other and technically they're very similar to building listing I think we're all very familiar with the planning of having to do things to listed buildings and how tight mm. those planning laws are and having to do anything add anything to a house or change the fabric it can be fraught with difficulty but I don't think gardens listings are as well known and a lot of them have very similar regulations I know at Stonelands we have certain aspects such as our rockery uh, the river makeup and parts of the planted tree landscape which is protected and, and we cannot well we it's not that we cannot alter it, but we have to mm. go through a whole planning procedure to get permission to alter it. Yeah. Um, I was going to ask you, cause, because at East Island Hall, we don't have any listings at all. Um, so I was going to ask, what are the, do you find it restrictive or do you find that you're, because you're, you're part of something that's uh, conserving, as you say, something that's significant in our landscape, do you, do you find that actually quite rewarding or what's your view yeah it's interesting um i'm lucky that i'm involved with my local gardens trust really well so the gardens trust is a uk charity uh, but there are local gardens trusts usually county based so there's a devon's garden trust and they're usually the first point of contact for discussing planning regulations because they're usually the consultants that the local councils will go to um and to be honest Garns listings aren't as well enforced as building listings. And I think this is because gardens are ever-evolving things. They're growing natural things. And I think that's a lot harder to plan for than buildings, which are, you know, bricks and mortar, very uh, permanent structures. Very static. Static structures, that's it. Um, So I've never really had any problems with having to do things in the garden. Actually, it's more when you want to put more building in the garden. So actually, it goes right back to the mm. building. So at Stonelands, we had a uh, a large extension put on the back when it was renovated. And that took a, yeah. a small part of the landscape out. And that had to be that had to go through all the planning regulations um Mm. also when we had arabella lennox boyd come and do a lot more of the redesigning of the herbaceous beds that also went through our locals gardens trust to get planning consent um but to be honest it wasn't as difficult say as buildings because as i've said gardens are evolving and i think many uh the more forward-thinking gardens trusts know that if you just leave a garden as it is with no input it will just degenerate over time. There's many examples of gardens out there. Uh, Lost Garden of Heligan's a great example of gardens that have been lost yep. to time and have degenerated yep. and therefore you will lose these beautiful landscapes. So I think a lot of gardens trusts are very positive in their feedback in people looking after gardens. So 
so far, I haven't fallen foul of it. But if you do have a grade two listed garden or a grade one listed garden, it's something to think about. And um, light buildings, I think it's very positive because it does, as you've already indicated, protect these wonderful examples of gardens and landscapes that we have. So so tonight we do have a, another, what I think is a very exciting topic. And this was brought to my attention, just jogged my memory, because I had an email today that... Um, yeah, I think if I was a horticultural student now, I would be very excited because the scholarship season has opened for horticultural students. It starts in September, closes in January, and any students out there studying horticulture, enriching their, their career with this wonderful, wonderful, wonderful career, they have the chance to apply for grants, bursaries, quite significant ones that will allow them to either travel or um, go to different gardens to uh, to carry out research, to do all, all manner of things. And I think that is, um, honestly, that that is a really exciting thing. I, we were talking before pressing a record in our podcast. I've not applied for a bursary as such. I did apply for a grant when I went to Riddle College. That was back in the day when we got grants for supporting our education. So in that sense, I do understand the 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 privilege I think you feel in in these scenarios where someone's helping you in your career. I mean, my parents didn't have a lot of money; they were smallholders, and that was just the industry was was not very um, lucrative. And so, for me, I wouldn't have been able to go to college had I not had a grant. So, I understand it to a point, but I know, as I say, there's there's and you saw you you've applied for one to to allow you to travel to the other side of the world. Yeah, I, I applied for one to travel to Australia to go and study orchids in North Queensland, and I've got wow. to say. Scholarships and bursaries are an amazing resource for people to tap into. And I know most of them are aimed at the, the student end or the, the, the entry level to gardening because we want to get more people involved and being able to entice them or be able to fund them through maybe some studies or something is a great way use of, of this money. But actually, there are so many different award bodies out there um, that you don't technically have to be a student. You just have to be someone with, a, with an idea of what you want to aim for and just be able to write a really good proposal to say uh, I require x amount of money to go and do something so the, the, Australia is a great example I really wanted to go and look at orchids in the wild I'd never been I've been obsessed with orchids since I was a teenager but going to Australia and funding that kind of trip is not uh, a cheap undertaking for a student at Q who's trying to you know, work their way through living in London for one thing. So I applied for a a, a grant from um, what was the Q Guild. I think it still is the Q Guild, which is a very old um, charity uh, associated with Q. It's separate from Q now, but it's of all uh, all the old um, uh, alumni of of Q, uh, mm. and they have a, a certain amount of money that they can give to the students to go and travel. And you know, with that money, I was able to spend four weeks there that's another thing i wouldn't have been able to do if i was planning it myself i'd probably be able to afford a week <laughs> a day <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly be able to afford the flight over and not one back so i'll be stuck there. <laughs> but um yeah managed to get to queensland i also had a little extra money so i managed to go down to sydney and do a bit of work down at sydney botanic garden um mm. so oh it's, lovely yes i've been there yeah it's, it's a beautiful that's a, mm. an amazing botanic garden if anyone's in sydney and completely free to go into so well yeah. worth it yeah. um but 
if you're a student, let, if we focus on the students, because we're very keen in getting people involved in our career. Yes, we are. Um, yeah, yeah. The, the scholarships and the bursaries that Lucy's uh, apply, um, indicating here are from the David Colgrave Foundation, which is a, it's a big yes. foundation, which has a, a lot of money that comes from the commercial end of, of horticulture. And they've got four or five bursaries here that we can see to support you in uh, numerous different uh sectors there's commercial there's applied research there's, do you, there's are you gonna are you gonna re- you go for it lucy i Let's can very read them. i can yeah. very quickly go, yeah, go, go through it. them so so we've got um the ball called grave sponsored travel scholarship which is up to 1500 pounds to, to fund travel uh to widen your knowledge you've got the um british protected ornamentals association which is uh it, which is endorsed by the, the marvellous Peter Seabrook. Um, and that's up to £1,000 to support the study of commercial horticulture. You've got the Horticultural Research Scholarships for anyone who wants to uh, um, carry out some research. That's £2,500. Uh, the John Gibson Environmental Scholarship, which is, a, again, £1,500 to support environmental solutions and sustainable applications uh, to commercial horticulture. And then finally, and this is just within this um bursary award scheme it's the student scholarship and that's a thousand pounds to support people who want to study in horticulture and as i say this is just open now if you want to get the details of these five that we've run through tonight you can get all the details from david colgrave foundation.org.uk applications are open now so i would imagine there's as you implying so a plethora of other routes to, to to get funding and grants for all manner of things um, you mentioned the blue mountains and um that i think you and i both know the man who uh, his name was neil and i can't think of his surname and he was working in the gardens at the time when so ian and i went to australia because he's got family over there and uh, we went to the Blue Mountains on a, a, a few days away, away just to just to have some time to explore the area. So we went to the to the Blue Mountain Botanic Gardens and we were walking around and I was wondering what it would be like to be a gardener in Australia because you hear about all these spiders and snakes and creatures that you know if you if you come into contact with them in the wrong way they can um, shorten your life by quite a considerable number of years so i was speaking to the gardeners about this and they were giving me some advice on actually how the noise of the machines can actually scare them away and they also said that they do like quite like to big up their stories just to sort of scare off the tourists which i thought was rather lovely but it meant that i, I met neil and he he uh, was so enthusiastic about applying for scholarships and he was gobsmacked that I hadn't been doing it actively. And he was just such a fantastic um, proponent of, of this route of, of enriching your knowledge in horticulture. And it was an infectious enthusiasm. And I felt that he'd, he really was a, a, a great kind of... Um, uh, ambassador for for pushing that forward what what i do what i would do if you're looking to do something is to work out what it is so let's say you want to go and see alpines uh, you want to go to the mountains somewhere uh, and you want to go and study alpines approach the the appropriate society or charity that's actually involved in that thing that you are interested in so for alpines go to the alpine garden society because they have a huge bursary system there that will pay you um, money to go and see these things and all you have to do in return is give a talk to your local society on your travels it's the same with the hardy plant society approach the rhs i know the rhs has a 
bursary scheme um and they've got various um pots of money either given to them in legacy will legacies or internally and they will help you out it's worth um approaching the local college if you've got a local horticultural college it's really worth approaching them because even if they don't have money they will have a list of all the bursaries available to their students and you'll be able to access that and it's amazing the amount of resource there is out there for you to achieve what you want so if you're sitting there twiddling your thumbs thinking oh i really like to do the rhs level two you know basic qualification but it's you know it's a bit expensive approach the college that you were hoping to study with and ask them what their bursary system's like because I reckon nine times out of ten, you'll be able to find someone who's willing to fund you through through the course. And that could just be the start of your career. Um, for me, I got sponsored by the family at Anthony, uh, and that's, that was the start of my career. So don't yeah. think that the pathway into horticulture, which I know can be daunting because we aren't the most highly paid people, but don't think that that first hurdle is quite high because there's a lot of resource out there to help you access yeah. uh, your your first step, as yeah. it were. Yeah, like I said, that's what gets me so excited when you when you read these that these things are out there for people to to use. This support, and as you say, the, the the industry isn't particularly well paid. It's it pays okay, but it's it's not going to um, earn you earn you hundreds of thousands of pounds. And I think if you if you can find a like we were talking the other day about our kind of like our entry into career and our, those very formative years when we were given chances and, and breaks and opportunities and things like that and and then luckily it's led on to us being in positions that we really really enjoy these days and if you can find a bursary that taps into something that you think do you know what I'd really like to say research this I'd like to go and study the flora of, of this 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 country I, I want to um I've got a burning desire to to find out something more about plastics in horticulture or, or whatever it is you feel that you really want to make a mark in and make an impression in a you can do that because the the, the money is there and as I say the time to apply is now but also b how ma- amazing it would be if you through applying for these these bursaries, you actually made a name for yourself in in horticulture. And as an, an added aside as well, as you mentioned, a lot of these have been provided by people leaving legacies, and to me, I think that's such a special thing for people to to do. Um, as you say, some of it's through commercial input, some of it's through various other routes. But but imagine you know that that person has has left money wanting it to be put forward into horticulture for people to enrich their experience their career their their future and what what a brilliant way to do it yeah it's quite special isn't it and i should say although we're talking about uh, uh money and grants here along with that money and grants becomes uh people who know the kind of thing you want to do there's a lot of experience you know the the grants Mm. are given usually by committees of very experienced people so say you wanted to do that visit those alpines but as well as not having the money you didn't really know who to talk to where to go where to stay 
the people you're taught to about getting the bursary will also have that kind of information. They'll be able to put you in the, into their network of people who know about Jazneriads in the Arabian foothills or something like that. You know, some really obscure stuff, but they'll know the exact person who knows that speciality. And then you'll get yeah. top class plank guides or or uh, hosts in certain countries you'll know the accommodation which is either cheapest or the people know that they're they like their plants and uh, and they'll sort of gear it up for you so it's not just all about the money it's about the the total experience yeah. so it's really worth tapping these resources for that kind of thing and and like lucy says it's exciting because it gives you a bit of a a passion for these things you know i can still remember seeing my first wild orchid uh in uh, the bush just outside the town of ingram uh, up a melaleuca viridifolia i can remember the tree uh it took us four hours to drive from townsville and there it was it was dendrobium caniculatum and it'll always be a burning memory for me because that is where i saw the first wild orchid but all made for me because i applied for these bursaries and i put together this travel plan with help from people who gave me the details of the people who knew about these things uh, and it, they are life experiences so you know you've got nothing to lose get in contact with these uh, bursaries with these people and go and have a really exciting experience We've reached the end of today's episode and we sincerely hope that you found it informative and entertaining. If you'd like to leave us a review via your podcast provider, we'd be delighted to know your thoughts. While many aspects of the garden year are behind us, there are still plenty of horticultural milestones to mark, so Saul and myself are eager to bring you yet more valuable episodes of the Talking Heads podcast. We're also keen to visit those iconic gardens, large and small, of our peers and friends. With this in mind, you can look forward to an autumn packed full of interviews, road trips, practical advice, and of course, mine and Lucy's opinions on all manner of wide-ranging horticultural topics. We want to ensure that our listeners are kept up to date with what any self-respecting head gardener needs to know. So, until the next episode of Talking Heads... Goodbye! goodbye!